Good morning, listeners. You are listening to 33.3 FM, your rock in the churning waves of the astral sea of the present day. Things are getting a bit crazy out there right now, so we hope that everyone can take solace and listen to people that, you know, at the very least, have a pretty good idea of everything that's going on behind the scenes. Um, so, Thompson, how are you doing today? It's been pretty annoying because the poltergeists in my house are avoiding me because of coronavirus, and I keep trying to explain that they can't get it, but they don't believe me. So, I mean, is it entirely possible that you're creating these poltergeists just from coronavirus uh, stress? It is possible. No, they were already here, so if they're stress-related, they're nothing to do with coronavirus stress. They've been here for a while. That, that may just be a sign that you need to relax a bit more, my friend. Poltergeists are relaxing. I think we have very different taste. I mean, look, it's people listen to ASMR. I listen to my shit being thrown around the house. It makes mm. the same amount of sense. Eh, different strokes. I can get that. So, for today's episode, listeners, we have brought another guest into the studio. Uh, another veteran charger. He's been certainly uh, made his way around the underground over the years. Would you like to introduce yourself, sir? Uh, hello, my name is uh, Stuart, J. Stuart Pate, if you have encountered me online um, in Mac attacks boards or otherwise. Uh, and yeah, I've my personal experience with the game is probably like came across it 13 years ago uh, and fell in love with it pretty much instant. Yeah, I think we all had a sort of a similar trigger events one way or another. Yeah. So Mr. Payne here has contributed quite a few things on the status sphere. He has... Published content uh, among other role-playing games, uh, including Lamentations of Flame Princess. So, Tormson, what exactly are we going to be discussing today? This is going to be one of our more um, practical episodes where we're not talking about the hidden truths. All of our episodes are practical. What are you talking about? Well, there's there's this, one. This is all very useful information to know. I I think our listeners deserve to know what's going on, really going on at Hamburger University. That is true, but this is in terms of using the military training manual that Greg Stolze developed to mimic and simulate the occult underground as it exists in reality. And through this, the psychological exercises known as campaigns and how they can be run is the topic of today. For some of our fans and just people we know, a lot of said that, hey, we're interested in this wargaming manual written by two feds in the late 90s, but we, we don't really know how to actually run this thing. All this stuff about people worshipping dead celebrities and wizards that gain magical power from open carrying, it's, it's really interesting, but how to actually pull this all together into something that is being presented to other people at the table seems to trip up a lot of people. And this goes back to earlier editions of the game. Third edition tried to fix this issue to maybe somewhat mixed results, but at least, I th in my opinion, more successful at dealing with that problem than the first two editions were. Um, I guess uh, maybe we should establish our credibility as far as giving people advice. Speaking for myself, I've run, God, I don't even know how many one-shots for this game over the years. Most of those were in second edition. The only campaign I've run for this game was third edition, and that lasted 
gone on a year, I think. What about you, Stuart? I've run probably a handful of one-shots, dare say, probably at this point more in 3E, but uh, but originally I ran ran a few for 2E. I ran a very brief abortive campaign in 2E uh, back in like 2012, I think. More recently, I'm in the midst of two uh, third edition campaigns, one of which has been running for a, a little over four years at this point. The other has been running for a little over a year. Yeah, for me, it's similar. Like, I'd had an abortive campaign of 2E that didn't last very long and a couple of one-shots, but for the longest time, I was more of a fan. It did seem harder to get people into second ed. I had more success with third ed, even though the setting wasn't different, and I don't know why. I think maybe I was just more enthusiastic, but I've run, yeah, two, three campaigns, two of which I'll be discussing here today, and a whole bunch of one-shots. That's interesting that 2E ended up leaning towards more stillborn long form things so Torrenson, you said you weren't really able to come up with any idea for why that is exactly Stuart, do you have any ideas i think in addition to the fact that third edition gives you a little bit more framework for your players to hang hooks on yeah i think like postmodern magic is more prevalent in the media these days you know second edition would have been before booth at the end would have been before the lost room would have been before having a lot of ready examples to tell your players, this is kind of what like Unknown Armies looks like. I mean, Booth at the End, Lost Room, all that's good stuff. Most of the people I've run for aren't familiar with that whatsoever. There is sort of a more of an undercurrent of rather idiosyncratic takes on urban fantasy as opposed to the 90s, which was, you know, more focused on taking folklore shit like vampires and bringing them into the modern day. Whereas stuff like American Gods, that was already a very successful book, but the TV show brought in even more fans. And really, I guess, Neil Gaiman's whole over kind of opened the floodgates a bit for getting people a very particular sense of a more magic-focused uh, idea of what urban fantasy is like. I think one of the really important things that 3D does, actually, is it allows players to have a chance to get really invested into the world without necessarily knowing a whole lot about it. I think with the introduction of the corkboard system, I feel that the corkboard system has made 3E a bit more awkward for one-shots, though it's, it's doable and it's working now. But it is really helpful for campaigns because it entices like early buy-in into the system, into the campaign, and which helps to give it a bit more steam to keep going on longer and also takes things off the, the GM's back in terms of keeping the momentum going. Because I know like with the campaigns I've run, people with the corkboard stage, people are like, what the hell is this? What are we doing? But then everyone really enjoys it because it adds that tangible element and it you end up creating a work of art. People People then want to continue to play the game because now it's something it's it's all there you can see it you can look at it you can touch it in the first campaign i ran in 3e we had the cork board left at my friend's house and then we had other people over who weren't gamers and they were like what the fuck is that and they're like oh that's from our game and they're like that's weird actually that looks cool it sort of puts everything in perspective and makes something that looks cool and is tangible and helps things keep going yeah, I actually have like a same sort of story of we were playing when I ran my campaign, we did at a friend's house. We just kept the corkboard in his room. And when he's had people over, he's apparently gotten a lot of comments on it. And he, even though the campaign's been over for almost a year now because I moved out of town, he, he still has it up there. Still just 
gets all sorts of comments like, okay, why do you have a corkboard with David Koresh and a Gadsden flag on there? What the fuck does all this mean? I think, in my experience, players tend to get most enthusiastic about upcoming campaigns when they either really like the setup for it or they have a very strong idea of what their character is going to be and they get really excited for that. And the tricky thing about the Unknown Army's general mystique and lore and all that good shit there's a lot of initial research you gotta really do before you can really get a sense of what characters are allowed and get really enthusiastic about your player character. That means the onus is on the GM to come up with a really strong initial concept and just, you know, not all campaigns have that. It's just, it's just a fact of life. I think like that is one of the things I know that it's still difficult, but I think that is one of the things that third edition did right by making that step collaborative that it gives people more buy-in. And I know you touched on that earlier. I think the other side of that is if you know that you have players that are into this specific thing, whatever their thing is, like if you know they're into this particular period in history or this particular subject matter or whatever the case might be, you can get them buy-in with that, with the pitch that that thing might be important, right? It might have mystical resonance with either their characters or the greater, you know, occult community. And you can incorporate that into your game. Yeah, UA is ultimately a pretty flexible game. Just the sort of shit that you can bring into it. Because the core theme is fundamentally something that's important to humanity ends up actually affecting the universe. Presumably your players have shit that's important to them, so you can pretty easily bring that into the game. For me, what I've run into is the big stumbling block for the courtboarding and getting really started. Because the session zero of Unknown Armies is really, third edition at least, is really session one. Right. Having the players come up with an initial goal. That's the big stumbling block that I've run into the few times that I've done courtboarding, either for the campaign I ran or I've done it just for fun a few times. In the game that I've been running less time, the, the year-long one, the players came up with their own agenda. Admittedly, that was something that we'd kind of discussed outside of game, and that was sort of what spawned it. But the previous game, the one that's been running for four years, it started life as a one-shot that I was going to run for Gen Con, and it would have been the first Gen Con that I was going to, so I decided probably not the best idea to try to run a homebrew you know, one shot for a bunch of strangers. So I ended up taking a lot of those concepts and porting them into this campaign during the, um, I think it was the Gamma playtest for third edition. Part of what happened with that was while the players added a lot of stuff to the cork board, I did sort of suggest the initial goal. It wasn't just a white space for them to go in. Um, and I, I wouldn't necessarily recommend that all the time, but it was something that helped. And clearly, you know, made a campaign that that people are happy with and is built to last uh, yeah more guidance yeah like players concept. especially players that don't really know much about the setting yet because they just really haven't had time to or the opportunity to find out about it you need to give them that little shove of here's the sorts of things that a campaign can be about UA is this very strange game in that, you know, there's deep lore, there's a lot of backstory and pre-established characters and concrete themes and mechanics. What Unknown Armies is isn't so much about the setting, it's more about the vibe than yeah. anything else. And that's very hard to really convey to complete newbies. 
so that they feel comfortable coming up with, all right, here's the sort of thing we can center our campaign around as opposed to like D&D where it's like, all right, we're all mercenaries or we are all wizards apprentices that are backstabbing each other in academia. There's a sense of, okay, here's the assumptions of the setting we're playing in as opposed to UA. It's really useful for the GM to give players their first um, few ideas of, okay, this is the type of thing that we can do in this game. Now, if players come up with their own idea themselves and they get really enthusiastic about that, go for it. They should totally be able to do that sort of campaign. But at first, with new players, especially new players that haven't really read the books all that much, which is, let's be real, most players, it's good to give them a few choices to pick from in the beginning. Which, luckily, Torpson has graciously provided for people. Available now at drivethroughrpg.com. That's right. Um, one thing I was thinking <laughs> is, one of the pieces of advice that you get um, for running Fiasco as a facilitator is to, since there's so many play sets, they say, like, bring three or four and then let the players choose which one grabs them. And the same thing could be applied to starting with an objective in Unknown Armies. Just go buy my book and choose three or four. Just bring them, three or four that stand out to you or whatnot. Don't make them so many choices that it becomes confusing, but just enough choices that, there's, that people can debate and have come to a decision or be inspired to make their own up i think that would help it a lot because i found like the objective portion like coming up with an objective at the very start before anything else is the biggest stumbling block but the but i think it's actually key to the whole process and helps everything else go much smoother yeah when i ran my campaign we everyone was super stoked about coming up with characters and building a conspiracy court board and shit but no one was ever really able to decide on the actual core objective. So we ended up actually doing like the first half of character creation for everything else. Over time, we came to a consensus like, okay, this is what we want our game to be about. But that did, when I was running the game, definitely cause some problems. Players definitely had a sense. There weren't really a lot of smaller goals that they could fulfill on the way to that larger objective. Yeah, working out milestones can be a bit of a challenge too. Yeah. And if, if, I was a, if I was a better man, I would have included possible milestones for each of the 333 objectives I ha had in my book, but it was just a bridge too far. I did intend to do it, but then I was looking at it and I was just like, I'm tired. I want this project to be finished. <laughs> I think part of it, too, is just that players aren't really used to, or at least a lot of the time, players aren't really used to being in that core creative control position. A lot of players are used to games where, all right, there's the GM, they come up with all the shit, and then we, the players, respond to that. And depending on how we respond, the GM then in turn comes up with more shit. And I would say that's probably been my biggest stumbling block in third edition is that like a lot of my players are older and very used to that directed 90s game design. And the idea that like, nah, man, you can just do whatever you want is a little foreign and hard to get into. My first um, campaign, a bunch of people who weren't that used to role playing, uh, but they were interested in it. Before UA even started, I'd, I'd spent... A 
couple of months subjecting them to various story games already. So they already they were they didn't have any of the the grognard baggage of assumptions. They were like like fresh little babies that I just like had had molded into what I want, and that made the objective process go relatively smoothly. Yeah, like you brought up a fiasco earlier, Torm, and I think that's a really good comparison because uh, uh, for one, I think fiasco and unknown armies end up dealing with pretty similar narratives of people with these very specific goals kind of fucking up themselves and everyone around them as they pursue that goal fiasco is a bit broader with the sort of setting that you can use stolzy has gone on record saying that was the sort of narrative he was interested in creating in role-playing games like coen brothers movies that sort of shit and unknown armies was kind of his attempt to get at that and story games also just give players more of a low stake opportunity to be in that creative driving seat because ua3 especially is kind of weird in that it has both story gaming and traditional role-playing game elements but the traditional elements are more in the moment-to-moment gameplay of your average session, whereas a lot of the story game elements are totally front-loaded on the players at the beginning, and then they are brought up again at the end of like every session. So players that are more used to the traditional stuff and less used to the story game stuff can end up getting kind of paralyzed at the beginning because they're totally not used to this, and what they come up with here has far-reaching effects for potentially you know, months of gameplay. I don't think I've heard somebody say that so succinctly. The idea that like the story game structure of third edition is sort of the top level overarching thing. And then all the traditional aspects are more from gameplay atom to, you know, gameplay piece to gameplay piece. I think that's pretty, that's a pretty solid and salient analysis. The session zero is essentially like a story game in and of itself. Like, Frank, I've just played Session Zeroes with no intention of doing a campaign just because it's fun to make a corkboard. And having that as an overarching structure, like the lack of structure was the one of the main criticisms of story games in the past. And Greg Stolzi's used it as a meta structure. The corkboarding in general is just a great hook for bringing in new players because you don't need to explain all this weird setting shit. Like uh, in my experience, it's good to go with a general overview. Like, all right, here's how to, here's how adepts work. Here's how archetypes work. Any other weird kind of new agey magic shit like astral projection or psychic powers or whatever, you can also bring in, or you can just be a random jack off. That's good to set up initially so players have an idea of what their characters are going to be. Really just the hook of, all right, we start this game by making a weird fucking conspiracy corkboard, and then I base the campaign off that. You don't need to know all sorts of shit about the setting. You don't need to know what the fuck a duke is or a charger or a pony or any of that but the opportunity to make weird conspiracy connections is just generally a lot of fun and it gets players to buy into it and they're like oh wait shit all these ideas are super cool we want to see these used in a larger game and then great you get to use them in a larger game while explaining anonamis the cosmology and things to people is relatively difficult 
and you have to make. I just don't bother. Things. Yeah, exactly. I Same. just don't fucking bother. Same. But with the corkboard, you don't have to explain anything because the, one of the good things with the Anonami settings is it, the cosmology can support basically any kind of occult supernatural weirdness in one way or the other so people can just put stuff on the board and you can look at it and say, i know what that is i know what that would be in terms of the ua setting so this is fine yeah like i could pro i think i could very easily set up a ua game and a cork board and not even tell the players about any of the archetype and adept shit and uh like you know some might actually read the book and find out about that stuff but if I don't mention it and just give them your character sheets and take them through the process, I think you, you could still make a very effective and fun to play campaign with just a bunch of normal people building identities and shot gadgets. That was, I mean, that was my four year Los Angeles game that there you go. none of them, my, my wife is on the Unknown Army's fan club board. So she had like some awareness and just, you know, she lives with me. So she has to hear about it. Uh, at least tangentially, but the other two players in it had never encountered it before, and everybody started out as a mundane person. One person had a um, a supernatural identity, but not an avatar or adept thing, and they didn't they didn't know what was going on in the wider cosmology, and it it blossomed into a whole whole fucking game. And I kind of love that UA three still has opportunities for that sort of thing, despite being designed in such a way that it assumes that all the players are kind of tuned into all this shit already. Tui was more explicitly had those three campaign levels. And when you're starting at street level, it basically tells you, all right, you've all been through some weird shit, but none of you should probably be adepts starting out or archetypes. It just, yeah, find out about all this shit as you go. And I think that's a great way to bring in new players in a soft way, I guess, that doesn't even require them to read through the rule book. You can just be like, all right, here's, here's the rule book if you want to read it. If you don't, no worries. Finding out about the weird, wacky, idiosyncratic adept and archetype shit is kind of their reward for diving into the rule book. But if they aren't really initially interested enough to do that, you can just start out with a bunch of mundanes like Stewart's game. I did miss a little bit the old division between like street level and like global and cosmic campaigns, but it makes complete sense putting all the avatar and archetypes stuff uh, up front if people want. That's why I like like supernatural identities, how they're done in the game, because it is way easier just to be like, yeah, you can you can just take a supernatural identity and we'll work out avatars and archetypes later. And also, starting with the mundanes is great because then they can develop and learn magic skills or whatnot. There's that suggested objective in the book, like we're going to make our own school of magic. That might be really fun to do with a bunch of complete mundanes who've got nothing, but they're aware of magic and they're just like, they've got the hubris that they're like, we're going to make our own school. What we seem to be kind of getting to here is that the best way to introduce new players to unknown armies is to essentially put as little initial pressure on them as possible get the cork board going give them a link or your copy of book one play if they want to read it if they don't no biggie and you just get going from there and you use the cork board as a way to get them initially invested in this and then of course you present them with a few options for actual goals and i think um 
a good thing to do is when you're presenting them with the various goals is also have each of those uh, objective ideas have a setting written down as part of it. Like, all right, if we're doing a Thompson's uh, campaign idea of fringe tokenology and you're all university professors uh, trying to reveal the truth about the Tolkienian prehistory of the world, say, all right, we're going to be running this at University of Chicago. So it gives a bit more of a strong sense of place. And if anyone's really into the, a specific setting, then they can glom onto it that way. Or if everyone's super into a particular setting, then you can keep the same concept and shift it somewhere else as long as the objective isn't super tied into the setting in some way. And I think that's a pretty interesting analysis, because even though I don't think of Unknown Armies as a game with a strong sense of place, its emphasis on on like concepts having weight suggests that, yeah, the place completely fucking matters. And most of the games that sort of like, you know, in brainstorming that sort of spin off have a very strong sense of place. to them. This could only work in this particular, you know, sort of area or this exact area. I do think UA does kind of implicitly have a strong Americentrism to it, just because so much of the archetypes and adepts are very strongly drawing from American popular culture. But it's by no means limited to running games in America. It's just that's going to be where a lot of the players are. So they have the most frame of reference. And Torrenson has been a very strong advocate for running Unknown Armies games outside of the United States. I was going to say, like, with the definitely with the archetypes, it's like, well, that's because there's more American examples in the book that's doesn't mean that, yeah that's just the way it's written well american wrote the book yeah but like you know the the material that the writer gives you it's the stuff that you're gonna more readily reach for so when you have a bunch of shit based off of hollywood then it's like all right yeah sure hollywood exports its culture everywhere but the archetype of say the mvp has a lot more weight in the United States than, say, Kazakhstan. Hollywood is technically just as much a part of fairyland as it is part of the U.S., but I'll digress. Oh, absolutely. Agreed wholeheartedly there. <laughs> so far as advice for GMs to get players into this, any other things you guys would like to mention? One thing I was thinking is about other stumbling block, milestones, which can be a bit of a challenge to come up with on the fly on the on the session zero it's one of the more grittier bits of, of that process one thing i could recommend having a look at is the game follow by lame mage who also did uh, microscope and kingdom follow is like a it's like it's a it's story game based on quests and stuff and it's good in and of itself but why i bring it up now is that there's a whole bunch of different quests in there and they all have like lists of objectives not objectives and milestones like ways you can have this like one of them is like a heist and there's a whole list of different things you can do to succeed in a heist and just choose a bunch of them and you go through them and once you complete them all like that's the game but just having those lists is actually useful to apply them to an army situation even that i'm saying go and buy another product from a different company but i already have it and i found it useful <laughs> milestones I don't even think they're fucking necessary, at least as the game presents them, as far as, you know, the third edition of Unknown Armies goes. I can get into that a bit later, I think. As long as you have some sort of coherent driving structure 
behind the campaign. I don't think the uh, the milestone system is even really fucking needed. Invariably, I end up just sort of like over the course of a session. Have you completed something that seems like it would it would benefit your objective? That's a milestone. So yeah, I can I can get on board with that. I guess Tormson's other critical piece of advice here is if your players haven't been exposed to story games at all, it's probably a good bit of training before doing some corkboarding. I mean, yeah, the good thing about story games is you can, it's just like a they're by nature one shots for the most part. Uh, so it's relatively easy. Yeah, I can think of a few. I can think of a few uh, example counter examples, but yeah, they're mostly sure, one shots. Like, you could play like you could, you could play Microsoft at a microscope forever, but most of the time, well, not a lot of the time, like Fiasco and this game Follow, and a lot of, a lot of the games are like three or four hours. And it might be like especially if you've got a group which are a bunch of actually, I won't, I won't say grognards again because that's that's too negative. But like people who are set in their ways and they they're comfortable, they've got a comfort zone. It might be a lot easier to get them to branch out if you can be like, we're doing this tonight and tonight only. Not we're not committing to a, a long form campaign outside of your comfort zone. We're leaving your comfort zone temporarily. That might get more people on board with trying things out. Yeah, that is a, like a lot of creative pressure to dump on players for the first time all at once. As far as like corkboarding goes, whereas something like Fiasco or Microscope, if you're running it for a single session, or all the other one shot story games out there, it's like okay, this is one night. This won't affect things after this. And we can just do what the game tells us to do. Whereas the corkboard is like, oh shit, uh, I'm totally unused to being in this creative role. The entire campaign hinges on this. Fuck. There is one thing I'll say in the defense of Milestone is, and talk, uh, mentioning Fiasco again reminded me, because in the first campaign, I didn't, didn't do it in the second campaign, but the first campaign I did with the 3E, I had them write the milestones down on the cards because we already had them because we'd been playing Microscope. So I had the index cards with the milestones. And sometimes that tangibility helps keep things on track, like just having them there and people going like, what are we doing? Oh, shit, it's right here on a piece of paper. That can keep things on track, just being there. Totally agree. Stuart, uh, since it sounds like you've also uh, gotten a lot of newbies into this game, any advice that you got for people that want to run this game and want to convince people to dive into the deep end? I think you touched on it earlier, and I don't remember how, how long ago it was in the conversation. But just in terms of enthusiasm, that's usually what I've been able to sell people on, is being very enthusiastic about it. And it, it's odd because, you know, as, as you said, the meta plot is not the key part of, of Unknown Armies. It's not like, you know, heyday 90s World of Darkness, that it's more a feel and the fact that you can... Whatever your obsession is, you can probably work it in somehow. And that's sort of the evangelistic quality of talking about uh, Unknown Armies. So yeah, and getting in newbies, it's largely just like, I have this game that I'm really excited about. Do do you want to play it? Here are some things you can do with it. And that's been what has worked for me in the past. All right. Yeah, sounds about right. What are ways to describe Unknown Armies to someone because that's so I have a very solid elevator pitch that has gotten people very strongly interested a few times now. So uh, y'all know the movie Tiger King, right? Yeah. The Netflix thing that came out recently and everyone watched. So my current Unknown Armies pitch is just, alright, you've seen Tiger King? Okay, it's that and those people are your player characters and you're also wizards. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's actually really solid. That's solid. 
three things I think you need to get at for UA is there's magic, ascend the modern day, and you're all you're all fucking weird. Everyone's weird. It does also depend on like what you're gonna do with the campaign because there's different modes you can play on an yeah. army's in. Um, I used to say it's accurate if you play a game like this, but it's more accurate for like a sort of TNI sort of game. But I used to describe it as like instead of Robert Rodriguez, that Tarantino did like a movie with David Lynch instead. The other comparison I see thrown around for a UA lot is um, Black Dahlia and a bunch of other those books uh san la uh la confidential um i lost it i lost the thread i know what you're talking about all right i'm googling this and james james elroy yeah i know stolze and tines have both gone record saying that james elroy were uh, big influences on the vibe they were going for the game especially in the early editions which with all the organized crime elements which i like i love but they've been kind of sidelined a bit in the third edition. It makes a lot of sense. Grimy underworld full of strange but memorable characters. Your thing with the TNI campaign, I think, is a good point, which is one of the really good ways to pitch a campaign to some players who aren't necessarily familiar with the setting is to say that you're going to be working for a given organization. Here's what this organization does. That is a much more confined vision of the setting but it gives players a stronger initial idea of what the fuck they're actually going to be doing during the campaign. So it's like, okay, it's this weird world where there's all sorts of people that are imitating porn stars to gain magic powers. That Those are just anecdotes where instead it's like, okay, you guys are part of this organization funded by this uh, eccentric rich guy that is in charge of finding out about magic in the world and keeping it under wrap. That's something that they can pull something from a bit more, I think. And I think that's that's probably the key of pitching a campaign, not necessarily in the sense of an organization, but just like whatever you can hang your hat on. A friend of mine years ago said, you know, if, if I were to get her into role-playing, it would have to be about Garfield meets ne'er-do-well celebutants. And I, I keep, that's been in the back of my mind, just from the idea of that, we're going to cycle back around to that, and I'm going to pitch Unknown Armies to you, because Unknown Armies is tailor-made. And whatever your nonsense is that you're into, we could probably build an Unknown Armies campaign. Yeah, see, like I, now I'm picturing a campaign focused around the secretly cutthroat world of uh, newspaper cartoonists. Right. Yes. Well, it makes sense that whatever anyone's particular weird shtick is will fit it on armies because it's a game about obsessive weirdos trying to exert their will on reality with magic, and obsession could be anything. That's some very strong starting points as uh, far as how to get players into this. Big one is, I think, pitch campaign ideas to players instead of pitching the game itself, I think is a very good starting point. But then you can say, all right, broadly, the game's about conspiracy weirdness and magic. It starts with us creating a cork board uh, that I'm going to be basing the campaign off of. And then if players are a bit uh, more used to traditional GM-led campaigns, then maybe play some fiasco with them first to get them more into that sort of headspace of play in a more low stakes situation. Just to circle back, um, because I was just thinking about, as you brought up the groups, and I was starting to think like the different groups sort of have different, I guess, sort of what the word, what the word would be like, maybe difficulty levels in terms of 
instant grokking for yeah. people. Like sleepers are the most obvious. It's just like, okay, you're a group that wants to suppress magic and you go- But you're vigilantes. That's yeah. kind of the spin on it. Yeah. But it's something that there's there's lots of games like that. I love the sleepers, but there's lots of games that are sleeper esque um, yeah. in their setup. Like in a way, Delta Green is similar to the sleepers, except sleepers are. Yeah. I mean, like Delta fun. Green, sort of as the as organizations are now. The program is analogous to the New Inquisition, and the sleepers are analogous to the Cowboys. Kind of, yeah, broadly. That's about right. Yeah, the next level up, New Inquisition. It's a bit more. Obscure, it's like you're working for a crazy corporate wizard who wants to control magic. Not a huge jump, um, similar sort of campaign style. But then you take the level Actually, up. more, maybe the sleepers are more analogous to like your average group of Call Cthulhu investigators. Yeah, I'd say so. Yeah. Um, and then you go that one level up, it's like, then your Mac attacks and you're a bunch of fast food workers. Yeah, there's, really. the, <laughs> there's a lot of explanation for that one. Yes, but yes, and it becomes a bit hard. Then you go one level up and say, okay, now you're auto corpulentus. You're a bunch of rich Texas cannibals. And that's your character. Yeah. <laughs> or you're playing. Honestly, I think auto corpulentus is probably a bit easier to explain than uh, Mac attacks even. But Ordo is so obviously intended as a antagonist faction. I'm not sure a lot of people would be into, hey, we're all uh, influential Texas Republicans who are also cannibals. <laughs> This is the campaign. But the but the infighting, man, the infighting, it could be so much fun. We want to take control of the order. The other group that I think could be used as a decent jumping off point would maybe be uh, Flex Echo. Because that's just like, oh, right, you are part of some government organization that wants to understand magic. And your boss is a computer that can change reality and nobody really knows how it works. Basically paranoia, but in an urban fantasy setting. Flex Echo would feel like Delta Green meets paranoia until you realize the depth of how far you've fallen by serving this computer. For me, I would run it as like very gritty sort of political intrigue um, in all the human shit, plus weird occult bullshit around, plus a crazy computer that was written by Douglas Adams. Um, just to have that complete eight <laughs> tonal shifts all the time, it would be pretty good. Oh, I could totally see that working. I mean, you have the uh, classic British comedy of like droll and dry and sarcastic on the computer end, that being juxtaposed against all the deep state backstabbing. That works fucking great. Which I feel like that's kind of a mode where Unknown Armies feels very comfortable, is in a game that juxtaposes the sort of personal horror with stuff that isn't overtly comedic. It's not like goofy or gonzo, but is just kind of absurd and weird. And yeah. I think those those modes trade nicely with one another. Yeah, most people that I've met that run UA games don't tend to run them as horror games, which is kind of what the earlier editions sort of lean towards. This may just be a difference between editions because most of the people I've met run third edition, but they instead tend to run it as more of a pitch black comedy. Having it as pitch black comedy, slifting into horror can be... Well, it's less jarring, yeah. but it's more like, oh no, um, like the realization. It's like a Key and Peel skits, it's these absurd comedic situations. And then there's one that's just like has horrible, like frightening implications, which is why Jordan Peel is now a horror director. But there's that sort of tone, Key and Peel's high concepts 
fucked up, scary skits good for UA, I think. And I think the key thing there is that black comedy is always kind of riding that line, uh, like putting its toes right over the edge of the horrific without ever fully jumping in there. But you can still very easily jump in there and it doesn't feel that off because it's like, oh shit, okay. This is just shit that we were having our yucks about before, and now it suddenly really got real. And yeah, it makes total sense in the game. And that's where I think like the strength of the game comes from. It's a it's this is gonna be a weird metaphor. But running an unknown armies game, I feel like is almost like mixing dough or kneading bread. That you're always, or at least in, in my case, I'm always trying to bring things back to somehow personal responsibility is a cosmic concept and this is all probably somehow your fault if not personally then collectively and trying to bring the the player characters back to the idea that if something bad happens there's a sense of responsibility so i actually really like that because it kind of dovetails with my idea of making reading book one play totally optional because if you read book one play you have a very good sense of what the setting is like. If you don't read that, then you know you can still pretty easily get involved in the game and get started. But there's that idea of personal responsibility. It's, it's a bit fucked, but I like the idea of the players just choosing not to read the core rulebook and I'm in the game world biting them in the ass because they have no idea that all this magical shit is downstream from human thought. They could have potentially fixed a lot of this if they just read the fucking rule book. <laughs> or they at least would have had a much better idea of how to deal with this. Ah, the irony. But they can still play if they don't. That's the fun bit. The idea just of the personal responsibility as like cosmic just gives me the idea of running a game it's just a Jesus Christ advisory board game, but choose one of the players to actually be Jesus, who hasn't, who has wiped <laughs> his own memory because he's ashamed of his own creation, and like have that be the big reveal. No, actually, you're God, but you fucked up. All right. Well, uh, I think that's a great transition to our next segment. So uh, we're gonna take a bit of a break here, bring in a caller, and we'll be back with you shortly. Stay tuned, everyone. It's it, it's the complaint I get again and again and again, but the people don't understand. See, faith in God and the afterlife, that's great, but it's just faith. It, that's just what it is. And so we can't be sure that there is a hell, so we have to build it here now so that people are properly punished in the way they justly deserve. And if there's a hell, if there is indeed a hell in the afterlife, it's fine. Uh, then it'll just doubles up. The important thing is that we know justice is carried out and welcome back listeners uh we are now going to be shifting into talking about our own experiences running campaigns any advice we have and just telling i guess uh interesting stories and asops i guess gm asop would be a good way to put it from the campaigns we have run so Stuart, you yourself have run like three of these you said most of which were in third edition, you said? Yes. All right. So tell us about those a bit. Uh, okay, I guess I have a tendency to run kind of like slower, more investigative games. So I always I always look at them and, and feel like they're not as action-y as I've heard other Unknown Armies games being, but not comparing them to other people. I mean, the, the players seem to like them, so they seem to have worked out. Uh, so, so the two that I'm currently running, one is set in Los Angeles, 
and so draws in a lot from both kind of physical history of Los Angeles and the you know and the and the history of Hollywood as well. And then the other one is sort of like a um, anti-violence LGBTQ activism game set in Baltimore, uh, and they both have relatively different feels as as one might expect from that. What are some of the unique challenges that you've run up against running a UA game that's going into its fourth year now, you said? Yeah. Part of that is just making sure everybody's interested, you know, in in terms of like other games, because I'm running a couple other D&D games right now, and those tend to be a bit simpler in their plotting and and maybe more reactive in in terms of the players um but for a group of relatively traditional rpg players uh trying to keep them invested and very active in a game that encourages them to be to be active rather than reactive has probably been the biggest challenge of trying to run a game for for four years so what sort of um have players changed characters much over time? Uh, how has like advancement been much of a problem? Considering, uh, I mean, Unknown Armies characters, uh, third edition and second edition, are pretty underpowered as is. How has the length of the game affected how far they've gotten in like identities and such? I think the characters at the start of the game at least some of them would hate the characters at the end of it. Um, in terms of identities, most of them have gone up. Third edition is an odd beast because even though maybe compared to other games, they're they're more underpowered, compared to second edition, characters are more, more powerful and more competent. Um, and the way that advancement goes, if you start with like two identities at 60%, they're not going to go up a ton as game progresses but that having been said over over the course of four years yeah people have progressed um at this point everybody started out as a mundane character but over time has gained uh at least one supernatural identity everybody's gained an avatar path i have one character who double dipped into an adept path um so they have they've definitely progressed in a way that feels very organic uh, but also reflects the fact that they've had this pressure put on them. So so now they've sort of leaned into the fact that there's a, a magical world and they can interact with it. Because there hasn't been that much advancement, just because of sort of how the game's probability works, it sounds like there hasn't been a, that much difficulty in coming up with new challenges to throw at them. Not particularly. A lot of that's been very organic based on what they've gravitated to and how they've reacted to things in the past. I think probably the most interesting thing is less in terms of rules and more in terms of their comfort zone. I remember the first time within the first few sessions when they were trying to do something and they decided to resort to gutter magic and what kind of a, uh, a painful process that was of them trying to figure out the symbolism they wanted to do but in the past couple sessions, they did. They ended up doing a gutter magic ritual to try to save somebody from a hunger home, and they came up with their ideas so quickly that 
it was clear outside of the progression of the game and their stats getting better and all that sort of stuff, they've gotten a lot more comfortable with the concepts of the game. Yeah, having that four years experience, I could definitely see how that would help players get their mind in that sort of headspace where they're just drawing these weird connections between shit on a totally symbolic level rather than a literal one. Making a gutter magic ritual is, in a way, a story game sort of situation, and it requires that kind of yeah. logic. I mean, the comparison that I always tend to people, I always tend to tell people, is that gutter magic is improv comedy. Uh, like a ritual is a fully run out stand up routine. The ritual is generally more tuned. There's been more work put into it. It's going to be generally more effective and better than gutter magic. Is there anything, what sort of happened over the course of these uh, two campaigns of yours? I think what I just mentioned is a strong part of it. That sort of realization that, you know, the way probabilities work and the way that characters progress in unknown armies, the idea of progression being a sense of the players getting more comfortable with the concepts than anything on their character sheet is pretty important. And like, I even have one of the, in that, in that long running game, one of the players, his stats have actually gone down because he ended up trading them to a merchant for some other thing at like the midpoint of the game. Um, So the, the stats he started out with were higher than where he is presently uh, even, you know, even with advancement way but i think it still has been a still has been an experience that people have enjoyed even though you know unknown armies can kind of put you through the ringer as yeah as a character yeah how much have you had to deal with like player characters that hit burnout or get various uh, mental disorders it only happened recently that that became a huge problem but one of the characters had ended up over the course of a couple things getting a couple mental disorders another character hit burnout and like i said all of them at this point have some sort of avatar path. So in addition to just not really connecting connecting to the people around them, also dealing with the fact that their source of magic was cut off, that ended up becoming a problem relatively recently after going through all the stuff that they'd gone through. And we took, they took an in-game month off just to go to therapy, to an inpatient uh, therapy session and learn the power of like how, how therapy is the secret, you know, the secret healing power in unknown arm is the thing that yeah. you have to constantly be aware of uh, is your own mental state and how you are interacting with us. Yeah, um, there it's just one of those uh, identity abilities that you don't really see people think about much when everything in the game kind of comes back to the shot dodges. So therapy is a very, very powerful identity feature. Torm, what about you? What have your experiences been like? The first game I ran with a group of relative newbies to role-playing, except for my story game, Gauntlet. I remember the during session zero, I was trying to explain the objective system first, and I was saying, All right, you can do pretty much whatever you want, but we need to figure it out first. But there's not really any hold blood of what you can do, and I was trying to explain it. One of the players, she was just, I think she was she was trying to come up with an, with an example. So she was like, say we want to resurrect Prince, and she sort of trailed off, and I know she was like looking for like a, a reference, but then I was like, I just replied, yes, you can just try to resurrect Prince. Then everyone was like, yes, that's our plan. We're going to resurrect Prince. 
prince. And that worked fine uh, for that campaign, the search to resurrect prince. In that campaign, I put more work in than I usually do. And I even prepared, I've just found it in my Google Docs. I prepared my Prince package, which was, I just did my research and I found facts about Prince, a timeline of his life, his quotes, uh, quotes about him, and most crucially, rumors about him, a few of which were quite interesting. For example, I found one, there was a real world rumor that was that said, no women have ever seen his feet. The one woman who did claimed he had goat hooves for feet. <laughs> what? <laughs> Holy shit. I was, I just, All right. He, dr- he drove to graveyards late at night where he would put bees in his mouth. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and possibly my favorite, he used to play pranks where he'd dress up as a scarecrow. He'd dress a scarecrow as himself, so the person who found it would think he's dead. Um, yeah, there was a lot. There was a lot to work with. Yeah, doing research for UA games is always a lot of fun, um, especially after the corkboarding, because you have a very strong idea of like, all right, this is what the players are bringing into this how can i combine all this immediately disparate and crazy bullshit into something semi-coherent so like what i was given was all right the key aspects here seem to be the branch davidians and by extension david koresh the disney corporation a local party company because i was running this game in my hotel and a plastic surgeon that is some sort of mysterious and disfigured figure that is pulling a bunch of strings behind the scenes and what I ended up coming up with was a four-way struggle, actually five-way struggle, including the player characters, between the player characters, uh, a cult men's help, a lonely men's help group, a Branch Davidian revivalist cult that was living in the mountains and run by a somehow still alive Dave Koresh, a furry Dionysus cult, the Disney Corporation, and a accelerationist arsonist and it ended up being a semi-coherent um the players got the worst ending because at the last second they chose not to chop their balls off to take control of the disney vault and that ended up causing massive earthquakes to basically destroy the entire west coast but eh, that's how it goes sometimes if your players give you a bunch of craziness on the corkboard like a bunch of disparate ideas and you start doing research on things to try to pull it all together you often can find weird connections and things starting to make sense oh yeah i'm trying to think of that that word that uh, Kenneth Height always uses. Elliptony. Elliptony, yeah. You get that elliptony yes. all the time doing research. Or, or, or synchronicity. Yeah. Or synchronicity. But yeah, just it, when you research it, spend some time researching into, at first, very disconnected shit, you'd be surprised about how many connections you can find between that. I mean, Stuart, you're running a game in LA. I'm sure you found plenty of things to pull from for that. So my my starting thing in its infancy was just a one shot went to um jack parsons babylon working and went into uh nicholas skink who was one of the heads at mgm just reading his history was very interesting because he was somebody who like all of his rivals seemed to mysteriously die he just got very lucky in his life. And so it was like, well, clearly he's he's into some shit and ended up like the background is that one of the player characters, which he didn't know at first, is the secret granddaughter of Clark Gable and Sylvia Ashley. 
because he was the king of Hollywood and she was married to him and Douglas Fairbanks, who was also called the king of Hollywood. So clearly she symbolically is a queen of Hollywood and then ended up becoming this whole like secret dynasty uh, that existed. And then the other thing running in the background during the corkboard session was that there was some sort of other space that Los Angeles was connected to. And I'm trying to figure out the, uh, the um, origin of that running into the so-called father of Hollywood, H.J. Whitley, who was the seventh son uh, and all of his siblings and family died in the cholera outbreak uh, somewhere in, in Eastern Canada. And then his first wife and child died from fire and then his next wife was a psychic medium. And it was just like, well, this is too, this is too good. Um, and I know I don't have to do any work to make this weird. It just yeah. exists out in the world. Definitely the, the mini game of researching for unknown armies is among my favorite parts. Like you said, you half time, you don't even need to put the weirdness in a lot of the time. It just comes in there from looking at things beneath the surface. I ended up discovering a lot about the, uh, secret history of the Chuck E. Cheese corporation. And there's a surprising amount there. Torm, while you've been running your many games, Games. Are there any particular interesting insights that you learned from that, either for running games in general, running UA, etc., etc.? As Stuart brought up LA game, it reminds me of one of my hot takes, which is probably not entirely true, but I generally steer away from investigative stuff in Anonami's. When I was writing Go to my objectives book, um, that was one of my little personal like creative constraints is not to have any objectives that were investigative in nature because it is more reactive than active. I don't know. I, I don't feel Anonami's in its current edition is as suited for finding the clues and following like the trail. I feel it's better for like, we're going to do this and make this happen, if you know what I mean. Like, you certainly can use it for investigative stuff quite easily, but personally, I prefer not to do that. And it's also one of the things is making sure that objectives are proactive helps to keep the momentum going, in my opinion, and also helps to differentiate Anonami's from other games which are in somewhat of the same genre. Yeah. I totally disagree there. Um, when I ran my campaign, it was very much investigative, but I ran into a very interesting problem there. And I think this is why I'm not so big on the milestone system. Like the, the key thing about the objective and milestone system is there's nothing really that is unknown army specific about that in any way, right? You can take that same general idea, put it into really any game. It's kind of a nice sort of framing device and a way to track more abstract goals, which a lot of UA goals are, where it's like, all right, we want to do this thing, and the actual path to doing that may be kind of obscure. Uh, we'll just come up with some things we can do along the way, and then hopefully we'll get enough points from that to do it. And I do kind of like the thing of, all right, there's two different types of goals. They have different, they have two different types of milestones. They have different point values, and the goal is to ideally get them to 100, but if you can't, then you roll a die below it to see if you succeed or not. And that's actually why my players didn't succeed at the end. They had like 70 something points in their objective and it failed. So there goes California and Oregon and Washington. It's good for abstract goals, but for something that there's a bit more of a driving force like a mystery, I don't think it's really necessary. Okay, how about this? The objective milestone way it's done is such a stumbling block 
that what do you think in unknown army's fourth edition coming to stores in december 2033 how would you replace that or like do something else instead of having an objective milestone based system for objectives i think that's still good to have mostly it's just a way to kind of put everyone at the same page at the start of corkboarding all the milestone stuff which in my experience too players had a lot of trouble coming up with them there it's not necessary it's not necessary for all sorts of campaigns it really depends on what the sort of objective it is so if it's something really abstract and players like say want to do some big ritualistic thing to change the world in some way that they see fit like all right uh we want to lower the crime rates in our town and you know that you can do that in more or you can do that in less me metaphysical ways or you can start casting rituals to try to bring down the crime rate in some way milestones are good for that because it gives players something to look towards but if it's instead explore this building explore the inverted skyscraper upside down twin towers that are below ground zero then all right that's something more exploration driven it's a bit vaguer but there's concrete stuff that the players can look into there. If there's a mystery, then they're being drawn along by chains of clues and shit. Now, one of the things for mystery games I think is really important is to have a few different chains of clues that lead to the end result, even at the beginning. And then you can give players more clues in response to other NPC actions, right? I think uh, for running a mystery game, it's important to have a strong predetermined pillar of clues. Otherwise, players are just kind of... The, the mystery doesn't seem as, uh, as real. It seems like you're just kind of coming up with... Throwing shit at players and coming up with it as you go. But if they do something and in response an NPC does or some other part of the world does something else that would feasibly lead to a clue, go for it. Makes complete sense. Yeah, I'm always a, a big fan of that structure in mysteries that even if, you know, if you're trying to solve a mystery and you have a certain idea of things they can investigate, if they sit still for for too long the mystery continues and develops yeah. you know if you're tracking yeah. down a murderer they keep murdering or whatever the case may be so that more clues will develop over time you could adapt the blades in the dark clock system to Anonami's quite readily to clocks are useful for a lot of shit because they're just a very useful at table way to be like all right this thing is going to take a certain number of things to do and yeah. if you fail, then it rolls back. It's just a useful visual aid more than anything else. Most of my objectives in the LA game have been on a time that if you don't complete it by X time, something will change drastically enough that your objective will either end or be radically different afterward. All right, that's nice. And you could tie that into the, uh, if you're using the objective system, you could tie that into the actual objective score of like, all right, there, however long you go without fulfilling a milestone you will lose points from the total objective score or there's just a constantly ticking kind of like certain clocks and blades in the dark work there's a constantly ticking removal of points happening all the time and it never hits zero then something really bad happens so you're spurred on by that to keep going that, that's sort of the key thing I think that the objective and milestone system does in unknown armies is it's sort of a way to cludge some sort of 
forward momentum into a game which tends to have very abstract goals in its campaigns. The clocks would be helpful in simulating just the activity within an occult underground because the way it's structured is like they're going after the objective and you get the pushback. There's that whole pushback chapter. But really in a real world occult underground, there's a whole bunch of people out there trying to get their objectives completed. Yeah. Various people with various, some of which are related to your objective, some of which are completely unrelated but are going to affect the world you're in. So having a bunch of clocks related to other cabals in your area's objectives and you could just roll this as a GM, you can roll at the start, that could give you a guide to what's going on. One of the things that the book recommends, actually, or book two, rather, is to use objectives to track the progress of uh, other factions that are operating alongside the players. And that's something I actually ended up doing in my game is that each of the core factions had their own objective marker. When the players were first able to get into the Disney Vault and succeed their objective, they ended up taking the objective of the faction that they threw themselves in alliance with, which was the Branch Davidians. And they found out, all right, these guys have already achieved some shit. So it's starting at a different level than we may expect. You know, it's a good reason to just keep track of objectives of NPC factions even. it's Even if play, you aren't using it for the players, it's a useful tool for GMs to have for dealing with NPCs. Exactly. And my other tangent of like stealing shit from other games is, as you were saying about like investigating a mystery, say you're investigating like a cabal or the, the Upside Down Towers where Alex Hable has his office, you could steal the whole conspiramid idea from Nice Black Agents and Gump oh, yeah. stuff. I could easily see uh, like a Unknown Army's fourth edition, which is like this unholy concoction of like Blades in the Dark, Knights Black Agents concepts, which are more, again, more story gamey sort of things thrown in to make this uber board. I mean, those these things could, could work well to get a campaign, keep its momentum and maintain, if you're doing an investigative game, to have some layers of mystery and such. I mean, yeah, I think UA just as a setting really lends itself well to mysteries. That's why a lot of people use it for that. It's the same reason that Call of Duty is kind of like that. And one of the interesting things that you'll see in role-playing games is that some have very explicit or implicit gameplay structures and gameplay loops of sorts baked into the game some way. Like early editions of D&D very much have this cycle of go into town, buy equipment, go to the dangerous hole in the ground, see how far your equipment and experience get you, clear it out, sell that shit, get better equipment, and by this point you've leveled up, and then go wandering around to find another dangerous hole in the ground and repeat the cycle. Shadowrun has, all right, talk to the Johnson, scope out the area you're going to be getting into, break into the area, the getaway, lay low for a bit, talk to the Johnson, so on. Even though that a lot of these games have very built-in settings, some, like D&D, don't really have built-in settings explicitly, or they have them available as separate products, versus Shadowrun, which has a very strong setting that's core to it. The game's mechanics themselves generate this sort of momentum, and it's really baked into the system, and the assumptions of the roles that players are getting involved in. Like, sure, you can do a... It's like the classic thing of, yeah, sure, you can do a uh, political 
entry game in Dungeons and Dragons, but the system's really not built for it. While later versions of the game have kind of broadened their horizons, so it's not as focused as the dungeon crawling thing, uh, it, there's still very much games that it's not very good for. But then there's other games like Unknown Armies or Call of Cthulhu, which they describe a very particular setting and various aspects of that setting, but there's not really uh, any sort of assumption of this is what players do within that setting as their characters. Like, stuff like skills is well-suited towards mystery games, hence why Call of Cthulhu shit tends to be so focused on mysteries. I mean, I've heard of so many... Call of Cthulhu campaigns that end up devolving away from the mysteries after a while, not even devolve necessarily, and just switch to, all right, now we have all these magic books. We're going to become bootleggers that use eldritch portals for our bootlegging and are going to get involved with organized crime and fuck, we aren't solving mysteries anymore. That's why Anonami's kind of exists. Exactly. It's what Call of Cthulhu ends up being a lot of the time, but the setting is actually meant for that. Guys, you're not supposed to do the magic. That just makes you the mission. And you're like, nah, fuck that. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna become magic assassins now that throw deep ones at people. Because why the fuck not? If that's what players want, then they should be able to do that. And what I'm getting at ultimately is um, the big thing that the objective system does is it's a way to insert that sort of sense of progression and forward momentum into a setting with characters that aren't necessarily going to have. That's the big thing about it. But if you are able to come up with some other central plot and structure that drives the game forward so that players still feel like they're progressing towards something, because that's one of the big problems with sandboxes. Players feeling they aren't progressing towards anything. So if you're able to establish that some way outside of the objective and milestone system, it's not really necessary. But in any other games where you don't have that, say something like uh, Legend of the Five Rings, just to pull something off the top of my head. If you want to do a campaign that has a more abstract goal, players don't necessarily know how to reach that in a, you know, step-by-step -step manner, then just port the system from UA into this other game, and it will work just as well. I'm imagining Legends of the Five Rings UA now, and it's, it's interesting. I was thinking of a fun idea earlier of a Call of Cthulhu campaign, where there it's still Call of Cthulhu is a system, all that shit, and players start, as they usually do, they get, find out about weird occult magic shit, because their uncle left them some spooky house or whatever. But it's not in the Lovecraft uh, setting at all. It's actually in Unknown Armies, and the players just don't know that at all. And I just port the UA magic system into the Call of Cthulhu skill system. That would be one of the few times where it would be acceptable in a Call of Cthulhu game to have like the existence of Lovecraft's works be part of the game world. Normally that's cheesy yeah. fuck, but that could be a, a clue that things are not as they seem. Why are all the weird occult tomes we're finding written on restaurant napkins? Uh, Stuart, your take on all this? I think you, like, this is going to be a bit of a tangent, but I Go think you hit on something that I've never... Like I haven't ha haven't really seen a, a strong conceptualization for it, and it's the fact that when you hear people describe unknown armies campaigns, it seems like everybody focuses on a different thing. Like some people like the weird monsters, like you know the fact that you could do a monster hunting campaign with these sort of weird humanocentric creatures in it, or some people like the factions, or some people like the weird magic, or some people like doing you know the mini game of of odd research. 
and the idea that Unknown Armies doesn't necessarily have a strong gameplay loop other than do weird shit um, yeah. as, as it's core. <laughs> That, that kind of lets it go all over the place. But yeah, that it doesn't have as, as strong an idea as to its gameplay loop as something like Shadowrun. And that's why I think it's so important to have some very strong objectives to present players with at the very beginning, or at least one of the big reasons why. You could say that if you needed some kind of gameplay loop like that, this is going back again to groups. I remember in like the Splat books, they kind of had implied gameplay loops like there was a tni loop and like a sleeper loop yeah that made sense organizations are good for that because when players have run out of things to do then just the higher ups give them a mission that changes things a bit it makes it it's still ua but it's not it becomes like it goes from you did it to i was just following orders yeah exactly and that's why i think the games also think the game's at its best when players are ultimately the ones driving things forward but when when you're driving towards something it's a good idea to be able to see it otherwise you're just driving in some random direction you know and i think it is a good point about the more abstract objectives you know the more abstract things you can do in the game need some sort of structure I think like the the one thing that I, I do have a tendency to waffle on the objective system and milestones and, and all that. Same. I to- by, towards the end of it, I just was barely even using milestones. But the thing that keeps me coming back to them is the fact that in third edition, you can use gutter magic to increase them. And that I think is a is a huge advantage over second edition where tilts they had some utility and you could influence some die rolls, but they weren't quite as dynamic. Whereas the ability to bless an objective and increase it makes gutter magic very dynamic and have a broad scope as to what you can do with it. How I ended up actually dealing with that in my more mystery driven campaign was just that they could use gutter magic to get clues if they wanted to. And that's kind of a good way to sort of include that slight element of One, I think any mystery-driven game needs to have some sort of quote-unquote hint system baked into it. And two, it's that way of when players are stumped on the clues I pre-made for them, it's a way for them to look outside that and be like, I want some clue. This other shit isn't doing enough for me. Frank, improv something for us. I'm going to do some gutter magic. If you just threw out the objective system entirely or just had an objective but no milestones or something like that, you could still do like a sort of like Alice isn't dead style, like just wandering through the occult underground and encountering what you may encounter or like a like Kane from Kung Fu sort of thing where you just go around solving problems. You could do that. There's no problem with that. It would be a different feel to the game. Yeah, I think a lot of players like to have some sort of long-term goal they're working towards, but if they're into just something that's very episodic like that, a cult road trip totally works. What we seem to be getting at is that the objective of milestone system is good as a fallback. A very uh, driven player group probably won't even need it. Yeah. If they know what they want to do and complete that goal. But it's also a really good thing to port to uh, steal from and port to other games. If you're running something more sandboxy and play, well, you want that sort of lower scaffolding to give players a bit more of a push. I think for as far as the UA setting and system, especially if you take out that aspect for UA3 or just run UA2 because it doesn't have the milestone system in the fucking first place, you can take really any structure from any other game and do it within the magic system and setting pretty easily. Like, um... There's a game that came out recently, uh, Urban Fantasy Dungeon Crawling. Esoteric Enterprise. 
Esoteric Enterprises, there we go. That's a very similar setting to Unknown Armies, and it kind of shows that you could totally have a dungeon crawl game in the UA. It's not much of a stretch at all. Um, this is a tangent, but apparently the author of the game is quite annoyed that people keep insisting on using it to play cops when the entire system, <laughs> when cops are a are a monster within the game, and it doesn't make any sense. Well, that's like saying, like, oh, we don't want it. It's it's like the classic, oh, we're all playing like mind flayers and liches and shit evil campaign, right? Of course, there's going to be people that want to do that. True, actually, that might be a good way to put it. Um, and, you know, d- discarding any other uh, discussions about our poli- uh, the United States policing system. It, 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 something like that does provide a lot of structure to a game that is that for some people that tend to think that it lacks. You know, again, it's a thing of working for an organization when your own goals um, are in a more stagnant situation. Having some higher ups gives a good way for GMs to give players shit to do. But like Tormson said, it does kind of detract a bit from the core theme of Unknown Armies. I think one of the things that I I haven't really read anybody's you know description of a game, and I haven't run it, but I would imagine that if you were playing for an organization and you went on long enough, eventually you would develop your own goals and obsessions, and would get you know you would dive head first into the the weird postmodern magic of unknown armies even if you're in some sort of structure any game running on a long enough timeline would have to be even if your players are playing ponies um yeah i I don't think uh, people want to run unknown armies because of all the crazy magic shit so eventually the players are going to encounter that stuff well everyone has their obsession so that's going to naturally develop if you throw enough stuff at them and be like yeah look at all this tasty tasty power and just unknown armies characters more so than in most role-playing games have a lot of values and goals built into their character from the get-go absolutely so what are some problems i have found in my campaigns that i get over ambitious sometimes and end up throwing too much at the wall and then i end up confusing myself uh this was less of a problem in my first game and more of a problem in the second uh in the second um it was a group that was more experienced with role-playing but uh it was very much more of a beer and pretzels like sort of wednesday night thing and also it was a like a hump day celebration sort of game day so the the players were there was a dipsomancer and two adepts who were obsessed with weed and that basically described the players as well as the characters (laughs) and as well as me um so i spent a lot of time gming while stoned and or drunk um which was fine because i could do seat of my pants stuff but was difficult like if especially next week or we we had a break like two weeks later and i'm just like fuck what did i say about the legion pigs fuck Yeah, yeah. I ran into that same problem a bit with my own game. For the reasons that you talked about, I've just learned over the years that I can't GM very well when I'm I'm high. (laughs) Tipsy I can do, but high, I just lose that train of thought too quickly. The problem I ran into was a similar one of just biting off a bit more you can chew, where I had this overarching mystery and all these factions... And I found out that the factions ended up crashing into the mystery and throwing them off it a lot. And like halfway through, the players just kind of became a lot more interested in all the faction shit than the core mystery that the factions were also interested in. It felt kind of secondary by this point, which sucked because 
solving this mystery was the core objective. You can have a game that's having players be proactive in solving a mystery, and you can have a game where the players are reactive and trying to deal with all these outside NPCs and organizations, but they can collide into each other a lot and kind of throw things off track. Yeah, for sure. Like, I constantly had to remind players, hey, the Disney vault, instead of them just being naturally interested in it. Because instead they're like, oh no, we want to find out about the furry cult and get on the good side of the trip, Banch Davidians. And so I can spend more time with my idol, David Koresh. Well, this might be one of the reasons for having that timer in the background going, that reminder. Yeah. I also think for sandboxy games that like, obviously it's more work for the GM, but that can be a feature rather than a bug that if you're, you know, if your players lose sight of the original objective to, to ask them that, do you want to switch objectives? Cause that's definitely an option they have. Yeah. That you can do something else if you want. Though the game does penalize it a bit. That yes, it does. It does, and I, in a way that I do agree with the idea that players, you know, they, they want to see the numbers go up. And yeah. so they're loath to change their objective, even if they really aren't committed to it. Yeah. And I ended up having that discussion with my players, and they felt almost like, yeah, we really should get back to the Disney vault. It felt like an ob- looking into this occult vault run by the Disney Corporation felt like an obligation compared to all the other shit they were dealing with. Well, then you could just have the threat that someone else is going to take it. Well, no, that's what it was. That's what it was. That all these other factions also want to get in there. You should just go with it and say, like, or you could just yeah. have. I'm like, yeah, someone else got it. Sorry, guys. <laughs> Part of the problem, too, is that they kept being like the way I set up all the faction leaders is they all had like their good sides and bad sides. And the players are actually sweating like, oh, shit, all these guys kind of suck, but all of them kind of have a point. So we don't really know who we want to throw our hat in with by the end of it. Wear your own hat. And they ended up kind of going with that. At different points, they sort of talked to all the varying organizations around. And at one point, actually, each player character was um, more or less aligned with a different faction. Well, that's glorious. Unknown to the other players, which was a lot of fun. By the end of it, they like they didn't even have like a goal at the end. They're like, ah, eh, fuck it. You know what? We're just going to resolve this in the most arbitrary way possible. So it's fucking resolved. And that's that's what happened. I think part of it just comes down to uh, what your strength as a GM are. If you're better when you have a much stronger preset plot that you kind of intend players to not necessarily railroad them down, but largely stick to, then a mystery is a really good thing to hang the campaign off. If you're much more improvisational and just kind of want to see what crazy shit the players get up to, just set up a sandbox, put a few factions in down there, shove the players in the first couple sessions, and then after that, see what see where everything goes. And that's where the objective system is good for. One advantage of the Anunnami setting for improvisational sort of city of your pants sort of sandboxiness is if you forget details or fuck things up or whatever, you've got a built-in explanation with the setting in the fact that the Cleomancers are just changing history all the time. So you can just say like, oh, yeah, that... I don't know. There must there's, there's probably a cobweb farmer around here somewhere. Yeah, I should have used that excuse more when I forgot things in the previous session and how exactly they went. Or if they're real dicks, you could say, "Oh, okay. I guess you're old now. Never when people in the universe wants to kill you." 
Yeah, just switch them to a different universe all of a sudden. And it's still the same objective because the universe is very similar, except now the universe wants to actively fuck with them. A related thing that I did with my players is that there would occasionally be, and again, these are these are groups who didn't really know the cosmology and didn't know, you know, didn't know the books super well and reminding them. Yeah, if things seem overly contrived, go with that. That might be a thing that you want to pull at. You know, even if you don't know about the clergy or synchronicity or any of those sort of higher level concepts, there are a lot of coincidences happening around you. Ask questions about that. That's not necessarily just me as a GM being lazy. The world is just like that. That's also just really good training for chargers of, all right, we make it so that every sort of weird piece of implausible synchronicity is actually a clue that really encourages players to think in the sort of paranoid ways that actual chargers are likely thinking (laughs) and remember never worry about something being too contrived because a synonym for contrived is engineered. Exactly. Uh, obviously, yeah, this is a bit of a weird coincidence. Maybe the deep state did it. Who knows? Something that actually just came to mind as a fun thing to do in a UA mystery game, maybe, is to have each clue kind of be its own little MacGuffin with some sort of ritualistic power associated with it. A mystery game where each clue in the game is actually some sort of artifact as well. And that's also a good driving force mechanically because, yeah, players want to collect cool artifacts that do weird shit. Sounds like the Lost Room. Yeah, no, perfect example. The uh, the one that still gets me that, like, I wish I had the chops to pull it off was years ago on PGNet forums, somebody asking, I gave my players this this briefcase, but didn't decide what was in it. What should be in it? And Greg Stolze jumping in over the course of the conversation, people saying, yeah, each session when they open it, like it resets and they have to find it again. And then Greg Stolze jumping in and saying, and how many loops before they figure out that they've changed their behavior enough that the briefcase is actually a mobile room of renunciation? And just like the idea of, yeah, going through this sort of artifact collecting scenario and realizing that you have been renounced in some way. I don't think I have the chops for that, but I hope someone does. I mean, I just love those sort of... They're hard to pull off, same way that those big twists are hard to pull off in movies and literature and shit, but when you have that one thing in the game that reveals that the player characters have been looking, and the players, by extension, have been looking at the world completely wrong, it's it's fucking great. Um, It just blew my mind, the idea of mobile... House of Renunciation, because I can think of so many examples of things, how that would work. I'm just thinking of that. Remember in second edition, they had that one NPC who was the taxi driver lady that would talk your ear off or listen to you. Imagine if she became an agent of renunciation. It was like a taxi of renunciation. Now an Uber of renunciation. Any other salient advice you got for GMs, I'd say the big one for UA is just establish a observable goal early on and make it make sure that players always have that goal or goals in sight. They always have some way that they know they can work towards it. That's kind of the thing about um, gutter magic that's a bit tricky is that it leans into that more creative end that players may not be used to exercising. So they don't really know how that can really contribute to their objective. Making sure players have some objective from the get-go and they always know how they can get closer to that objective, I think is really important more than anything else. Players need a reason to care. One idea, um, again, I'm stealing from other games, but I know that in The Guy in Reach, 
um, that retro sci-fi game. I know in that there's an antagonist that they're all like, I don't know know if it's all games, but they're trying to kill. Each player at the start has to come up with the reason why they want to kill this guy. So in an Unknown Armies game, you could totally have the same thing. They're going, they want to kill this fucking wizard or they want to kill Alex Abel or um, GLS guy or whoever. And at the start, you can say, maybe instead of having the like, show us like your unnatural experience, if you're not playing newbies, or even if you are, instead of that, you could just have, why do you want this wizard dead? That ties into the objective, and it ties each character to the objective pretty well. That's an important thing if you're establishing an objective early on. It's, why is your player character invested in this? And one of the great things about UA is that it gives the GM all sorts of tools on both the interpersonal level and the mechanical level to get a player character and the player piloting them invested in something plenty of strings to pull on that might be an argument for having like the an early objective for a cabal to be very antagonistic like that because there's lots of like psychological evidence that like people get along so much better when they have a mutual person to hate and you're more likely to keep people together if they hate someone but if you're all going after something or you want to pursue something else it might be easier to have like group dynamics break down but if you're starting off early you want to build up like camaraderie having a mutual enemy to take down first might not be a bad idea i'm blanking here uh there's as far as the three passions there's noble there's fear and what's the third one rage rage so something like that would be all right the only requirement i have for character creation is everyone's rage passion has to involve this guy somehow. Or you could do a campaign that starts off with your first objective is rage-based, so you want to kill someone. Then when yeah. you kill them, something <laughs> happens, and it shifts to a fear-based campaign where you're trying to survive something. And finally, when everyone's like on the same page, you can shift to a noble passion-based campaign trying to do something good for the world. Yeah, there you go. Um, though the issue with fear-based campaigns is, um, and I've run into this running Delta Green, I think you have Torm too, and even UA to a degree, when players are scared of something, they tend to not really want to engage with it. Well, then you have the phone ring and hear it say, fool, fool, fool. Yeah, you can give them a good shove to do that. And like I said, UA, between relationships and the passions and the shot gouges and the obsessions, there's so many ways to push players in a certain direction. The tricky thing there is in, say, something like a passion, they can still choose to not poke at it. They're just going to get punished for it in some way. So players can end up kind of feel a bit put upon if you lean onto that too much, I think. I think that's also definitely one of those things that depends on the group. Some groups are going to mind that that pressure more than others. Yeah. Some will see it as railroading. Others will see it as like, no, you're validating my character. I'm, I'm into that. And that's one of the nice things about one of the best things about how Unknown Armies is designed back to early editions is how well it implements core character motivations into the mechanics in ways that make it easy for the GM to use them in some way. And maybe it should be important to emphasize like, no, 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 you're not being railroaded. You're tied to the railway tracks. You can always say no. Right. You can always just take the hardened or failed notch, the shot gauge, but is it really worth it? 
in this case. So there's still always a choice there. And GMs have to keep that in mind too. There's definitely a few times when I kind of wanted to force my player's hand a bit and be like, oh, if I do this, uh, then they'll do what I want. And that did not happen. And I was kind of left stumbling. You have to take the Taoist approach. Just go with the flow. Don't try to push too hard. It'll just blow up in your face. Exactly. So push a little bit, take a little bit, and... The, the Zen approach to running a UA game, especially Sandbox, I think is a good way of doing that. And that was that speaks to one of the things that, that I was going to recommend while you were talking about um, while you were talking about trying to structure campaigns that just like once players feel feel comfortable enough with sort of manipulating symbolism, let them try whatever crazy nonsense they want. The Sandbox approach is, I think, a lot less of a problem for players that are already familiar with the setting in some way. Yeah. And I think that applies to pretty much any game, and it, it applies even more so the more out there and weird the setting is. Uh, you need to be, you know, you need to hold the players' hands a bit as you lead them along and introduce the setting to them. And then, depending on what players they are and as you get as you run games for them and get a sense for what they're like, you either let go of the hand, just let them do whatever they want, or you make the grip a bit looser. Replace hand-holding with a leash. Still pull them along a bit and give them something to look towards. Again, I think the key thing with any role-playing game, as long as players feel like they have something they can do next, you're pretty much golden. And I also think, you know, whether you're running a more investigative unknown army, game or a more actiony unknown armies game since it is a game that that tends to deal with density of information a lot don't be afraid to give your players more information at least in the sense of like reminding them of things they know compiling and bringing together things that they ought to know don't overload them but let them know what their resources my technique for dealing with that is lots of handouts because yeah. you always have something you can reference and a lot harder to forget something in other games i will often use like a house rule where it's sort of you can do an int test to and if you succeed on the test i remind you what you forgot otherwise hey sorry dudes take better notes next time but for ua i don't think that works as well yeah, I, uh, I prepare a lot of handouts, usually every few sessions, like every, I don't know, maybe 20-ish or so, uh, I will invariably sort of prepare a handout with, these are the people you know, these are the things you're currently working on. Um, I know my LA group has a lot of rituals, all those are on index cards. Like, Oh, I'm talking handouts that exist in setting. Oh yeah, that's fair too. Because having, again, having something that you can reference in setting. That's one of my sort of principles for making handouts is the handout should never just be exposition. It should, analyzing the handout should be part of the uh, investigative gameplay. Legit. So, but is if you figured out something from that handout, then you can just one, you have something to kind of anchor it towards, and two, you can always just like, hey, could I? You have the folder of handouts in front of you, and you can fish for that and try to get that. You know what I wish kind of existed as something um, because we we're talking about gutter magic before. I kind of wish that there were like levels up for gutter magic because gutter magic is a lot of work and getting people to get into the mini game of the symbology is a bit of a hassle. So I wish there was like you start off with as gutter magic is um, being kind of like minor gutter magic and much more elaborate workings having stronger effects and maybe like something like a, ma a major gutter magic being like 
an objective that requires like almost like a like infomancer major charge level of manipulation of reality that would be fun i mean i that's kind of what i think of objectives as depending on how you're using them it's just you do a bunch of different kinds of gutter magic and eventually enough little dominoes of synchronicity fall against each other that it sets off the big domino yeah and if you're using gutter magic for the blessing function to complete an objective you know, if you have a local objective, that's going to require less symbolic oomph than a cosmic objective that might, you know, you may have to manipulate the media on multiple continents or engage in human sacrifice or any number of large scale. Or set up a cult so you have a bunch of people doing the same sort of gutter magic. Absolutely. Um, and I think that this is kind of, though, it makes the game feel directionless at times. This is one of Unknown Army's greatest strengths as a setting is how it can just as easily do something so investigative-focused as well as something so faction-driven and player-choice-driven both feel like they work in the setting as opposed to something like Call of Cthulhu where it's like, okay, mysteries make sense. When you're suddenly being gangsters using the occult to take out your enemies, it feels a bit outside of the tone that's intended for the game a lot of the time, but... UA works either way for the tone, which is a very strong bonus. The purest Lovecraftian tone versus the pulp Lovecraftian tone versus the we're the cultists now tone. Yeah, exactly. So it looks like our phone's really blowing up right now. So maybe we should uh, take a break and uh, bring in a caller for a sec. Yep. All right. Can you hear me? Are you there? Rob said that this is where we all end up. Could you help me find him? Once he walked through the subway wall, he seemed to be gone for good. Should the way here close, you know where to find me. Accept the world around you as nothing more than a shadow, and then you'll be able to find me in. And we're back, you masters and players of dangerous games. Um, we are now going to talk about some generalized media that's UA-centric, as opposed to what we usually do, which is sort of topic-based media that's adjacent to whatever we're talking about. Um, but now we're going to talk about things that maybe is close in spirit or content to the Anonomics experience. Yeah, there's a couple of names that are getting thrown around earlier, and uh, we figured it might be a good idea to elaborate on those. So uh, three big names as far as like individual artists that are really influential in our armies are Tim Powers, David Lynch, and James Elroy. And all of these are influential on UA in very different ways. The most immediately recognizable one would probably be Tim Powers. As far as the most immediately applicable to unknown armies would probably be Tim Powers. I would say so. Um, however, I've only, I think I've only read the Anubis Gates which is the, one of the least applicable ones. But I know Stuart has read the relevant ones. <laughs> Would you tell us about them? Um, yeah, Fault Lines Trilogy and specifically Last Call, I know are the ones that I usually hear bandied about as um, heavily influential on the concept of the archetypes and the idea that there are these sort of like large concepts looming in the collective unconscious. And not necessarily that they power magic or the source of it, but just that they at least manipulate it. Yeah, that comes largely from Last Call and is expounded upon a little bit in 
want to say earthquake weather is the last one in that trilogy uh also the idea of like you know using occult correspondences to to sort of get your way and setting up proxy rituals and all those sorts of things kind of come from uh from last call and follow his trilogy all of tim powers books at least all the ones i've read are kind of structurally and subjectively similar they're usually all about some people that generally don't know anything about the weird occult undercurrent of reality. Something pushes them into that, and they are thrown into this grand, wacky conspiracy with mis- filled with mysteries, and they need to navigate this while a bunch of outside factions from the main characters, sometimes allies, sometimes enemies, also have goals related to this occult occurrence or artifact or whatever. That doesn't describe your average UA game. I don't really know what does. Like, fiction covers everything from British intelligence versus Soviet intelligence during and after World War II, struggling for control of Noah's Ark and the Jinn in the Middle East. There's how Einstein accidentally invented a time machine that is powered by Jewish Kabbalistic magic. The main characters are tied into that in a way that is not immediately apparent. Um, Another great example is uh, Medusa's Web, which is about old school Hollywood and all the weird occult and spiritualist beliefs that were floating around in the area at the time. They're always pretty much dealing with some sort of culture, sort of part of culture that isn't immediately parsable as a cult but has a lot of secret occult aspects if you look beneath it and then all of that shit is usually in some way true or another um there i was listening to an interview of his at one point that i liked a lot and he said that like at least one time for each book he's written he's had some point where he's doing his research and he's like wait this strange occult conspiracy that i've come up with isn't fake at all somehow i have parsed the hidden truth behind the highway structure of southern california and then he goes to bed for the night and wakes up and thinks about some more and like realizes what the fuck was i thinking no no that's 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 asinine you want some of your research to be pre-packaged for you and put in a pretty solid and easy to steal narrative or at least in little bits for your ua game uh Tim Powers is a great place to start. Um, the other figure, or one other figure that gets t- uh, thrown around a lot in relation to unknown armies is David Lynch. Which, um, I think Lynch's reputation precedes himself a bit. How applicable would you say David Lynch shit is for stealing for your unknown armies game, or even... In general, in general. I think it depends on the tone of what you're going for. I think some of his works are more Ananami's-esque than others. Definitely Twin Peaks in many ways. Twin Peaks is a big one. Yeah, but Twin Peaks is probably the most, in my view, uh, Ananami's-related. But you can also take from... Oh, then again, you've also got Blue Velvet, which could easily be adapted into like an Ananami situation. Just... Which isn't mystical, but has that same sort of vibe as UA games do a lot. Sure. And it comes with that tone. Like, the tone is set up very early in the movie where it's like that suburban landscape and then it pans down and you see all Oh, yeah, that movie just... (laughs) That movie tells you right away what it's about. Yeah. But But that's good in terms of... That's a perfectly cromulent, like, 
tone for a UA game. Like, set the suburbs, there's horrible shit lurking beneath. Um, you just take that movie, combine it with Eerie Indiana, and you're set to go. <laughs> yeah, I think Lynch is more influential on UA in terms of vibe than, like, actual direct subject matter. Direct subject matter, Twin Peaks, especially the more recent season, which just gets fucking weird, even more so than the original, is... Pretty easy to steal shit from, but say something like The Elephant Man or Eraserhead or Mulholland Drive, really, with the exception of The Elephant Man, any of Lynch's less uh, narrative-driven stuff is great to steal for UA as far as like set pieces and tone, less so for like direct elements, I'd say. Sure. In terms of like characterizing especially like villains and things. Um, yeah, he's very good at characterization. Yeah. I think the, the most, there's Twin Peaks, is logic, is a, can tie in quick, quite well. Blue Velvet, uh, Wild at Heart as well, uh, with that whole yeah. uh, Wizard of Oz vibe. Uh, Lost Highway as well. Um, the villain in that is pretty, well, the so-called villain, the, the, the spirit, the thing, the guy. Uh, yeah. You can still Whatever that. the fuck that is. <laughs> Even, but Mulholland Drive, can, you can steal some, definitely steal some things. Yeah, it's just harder to parse because those movies aren't as literal, I guess would be a good way to put it. In my mind, from going, you know, from, from starting out with first and second edition, there's always like the halves of unknown armies that's sort of like the grittier, you know, grittier, grimier, more crime-soaked James Elroy kind of like Greg yeah. Stolze writing. And then there's the sort of like dreamlike, you know, joy and sorrow, uh, John Tynes kind of thing. And you can draw a lot of Lynchian symbolism into that sort of dreamlike part of it. Yeah, UA, weirdly enough, is probably one of the better, if not the best that I know of games, for doing a magical realist tabletop campaign. I think that something like that's very hard to pull off because magical realism is very much coached and there's all this straightforwardly weird shit going on around everyone like oh hey my neighbor married a tiger and okay cool that just kind of how shit goes in this town because you know players are going to react to that and comment that that's kind of weird but I mean that's the, the magic the way that magical realism sort of works is sort of the way that Unknown Army's magic system works anyway, so... I would say you could do a more magical realism-type game in Unknown Armies if you toned down the whole, like, oh, God, the tiger's going to wake up thing and just had it to be... Like, instead, yeah. be, be, just people just ignore it or it doesn't affect... Like, weird shit's going on, but most people... Like, have it instead be more like a it's the veil or whatever, like, um, I guess sort of John dies at the end kind of thing instead. Um, and that could work. Um, yeah, you just have some remote, small American town somewhere, and doesn't even need to be in America necessarily. And just a good portion of the population has some sort of supernatural identity, and that just that just should, how shit is around here. That's why they live all together in the small town. Yeah, exactly. That's your thing. Every character has developed a supernatural identity, and they've gotten like they've gotten trouble. And in this world, the sleepers don't kill you. They'll just like throw you in a van and drop you off at this small town and say you live here now. And I think another way you can bring those lynching aspects in in a more straightforward way is to 
use them as surreal horror rather than just surreal symbolic bits in sort of the way that, say, Silent Hill or to have things more in RPG terms, uh, Delta Green's take on Carcosa uses shit. The players and the player characters can definitely see that there's a lot of weird nonsensical shit going on, but everyone surrounding them is just acting like this is normal. You usually don't see them that strong, but that's a good place to bring in synchronicity and the archetypes in the yeah. sense of like people living out these freewheeling allegories, almost not realizing that anything's wrong, that just they're living out these roles. And you could definitely see like a, a small place where, where the archetypes are so close to the surface that nobody realizes this is weird and this is not how things are everywhere else. And that's a good thing to do to sort of strengthen the impact of core parts of the setting in a more pony-focused game. Like, say you find out your neighbor's an archetype and they don't know and they've just been going through these same cycles in their life over and over again, totally unconsciously. You could easily have a whole town of unconscious archetypes. Oh, yeah. That, that'd be a fun thing. You move to a new town and it, you just it seems like every person that lives in this town is some sort of oblique stereotype that they don't even realize, and it turns out they're all archetypes of one stripe or another. Now, one really crazy thing you could do, if you could lean on the fact that David Lynch is one of those directors that reuses the same actors and has his exact little personal actor stable like Laura Dern, Tyler McLaughlin, Jack Nance, and all that, you could just have a whole campaign of, like, you are the actors in, like, a David Lynch-style director's <laughs> stable, and each, like, there's not, it's maybe not objectives, but we were talking before about, like, the, uh, what's what we use the word for it, like, the, the cycle, um, the game, um, what was the word you used? Uh... The uh, gameplay loop? Gameplay loop, yeah. The gameplay loop could be just making his movies, and, and they're David Lynch-style movies, but it's also magical realism, like carnival on a film set kind of situation, and they keep getting progressively weirder following, or differently weird following his career trajectory. And then there's, a, there's that one which is completely unrelated when he does Dune. That could be a lot of fun for a more Jodorowsky-like director too, where they're actively <laughs> yeah. doing like ritual magic as part of the filming process. So you guys, like the setup for the Cabal is, you guys are part of this director's entourage and the guy's also basically a cult leader, and your rituals are the movies he makes. That's solid. That's a, it's a campaign. Yeah, and I, I was going to say I don't want to I don't want to interject too heavily, um, given that that we're still going through, you know, the three the three creators who were mentioned earlier. Yeah. That's basically the setup of the novel Flicker, and I think is good good grist for the Unknown Army's mill. Uh, I haven't read that. Have you, Torm? I think I've heard of it. Yeah, what's Flickr set up? But yeah, this guy is researching an obscure filmmaker uh, and basically determines that he's some sort of cult leader who's engaging in these allegories through his film. Uh, I forget the author's name. That's coming I up. think I've heard of this, though. So yeah, it's basically a sort of a setup for that UA campaign we just talked about, but from the outside. Yeah, this guy is a, uh, he's a film critic. Flickr by Theodore Rozak. So other things that we brought up uh, earlier were The Lost Room and Booth at the End, which both nail that sort of urban weirdness tone for Unknown Armies very well, I think. I like Booth at the End a lot. 
And the great thing about that is it's these very small miniseries. Um, the setup is very simple. These people go to this guy at a booth in the diner and he has a book and they want something to happen. He checks the book and tells them what they have to do. If they do that thing, then the thing they want to happen will happen. Uh, like an example given is this old lady wants her husband husband's cancer to go away. And to do that, she has to bomb a coffee shop. It's a solid Ananami's idea in terms of you could just easily just drop it into like a campaign. It's like, yeah. are you stuck on your objective? We'll just go to the booth at the end and yeah. he'll give you a task. And they're like very like they aren't in any way like even correlated in weight. Like another one is that this guy wants to sleep with this beautiful woman. And to do that, he has to make sure that this particular little girl doesn't get hurt within like the next, I think, few months. And that actually ends up being like one of the more dark plot lines running through the show than even the uh, the one with the old lady in the uh, Starbucks bomb. And the best thing is that because these are so short, you can watch the whole series in like two and a half hours, I think. Maybe not even. Yeah, I think it's like two to three hours because they have them stitched together on Amazon. And I think each season is like an hour, hour and a half. Um, and then there's the Lost Room also that Stuart brought up, which I wasn't really that big into it. There are definitely parts of it that fit that UA tone. It works for like an as a model for like an artifact heavy game. It does reflect yeah. an a, and a certain kind of occult underground. I would like to have like a a sort of lost room type situation where there's all these people competing for these item, these magical items. Like they just don't know about the rest of the occult underground. Um, yeah, the key thing that the key issue I had with that actually was that all the ancillary characters that were trying to collect all the uh, objects and shit were really interesting. And then the main character and the plot with his missing daughter was just not. My problem with it essentially was that the main character wasn't Unknown Armies enough. Which I think is fair. I'm with Tormson, though, that I love the idea of them just being the subculture in the occult underground that doesn't know about the occult underground and probably the larger occult underground doesn't know them yeah I, I can't necessarily say that like the the main people are as compelling as the concept and the other factions that come up um yeah. but, but that's definitely good you know fodder for inspiration and that's one of the nice things about the occult underground is just how like it's not really well connected in any way it's all just a bunch of people that know each other pretty much so you can very easily have these enclosed spaces totally unaware of all the other shit going on and just narrow the scale that way and make a, a campaign that's very focused one of the i don't know why they had the main character be relatively boring it could be from like an angle of i think it was just because it was a sci-fi tv show from the early 2000s yeah so that the, they're like we got the like, a relatable guy yeah he's the cop the, uh, the argument, daughter's missing the argument that could be made is it's like a, the whole scott mcleod like understanding comics thing of like the more the more generic a figure is the more likely you are to relate to them so make them as boring as possible but that makes more sense in the time period whereas i think if a show like that was made today they might take more risks in terms of making the main character distinct yeah. is there any other stuff that sticks out to you guys 
as particularly uh, good examples of what to expect from UA for newbies, at least. So I like to frequently recommend, even though it has no mysticism at all, Breaking Bad in the sense of somebody going from being a comparatively normal person, maybe a bit of a dick, but otherwise a, a relatively normal person who has sort of this life-altering event and uses that as the jumping off point to delve into a subculture that they originally know nothing about, but have a set of skills that are strangely applicable. And the whole sort of trajectory of the main character's obsessions and how that changes them is very unknown armies, even though the subject matter is not. I mean, you can very easily, I think I've always said that you can run a UA campaign without any of the mysticism pretty easily using just system. I mean, unnatural is only one of the shot gauges. You cut that out and you have a pretty damn good system for running something like Breaking Bad. Um, you don't even need to cut out unnatural because you can um, coerce unnatural just by being really creepy. So you can just have unnatural, <laughs> like the creep factor. Yeah, it's not even something uh, that's like supernatural in some way. Just like this person's fucking off. I can't really place why. Earlier you brought up American Gods, which is good fodder for inspiration. But I think Archetype especially. Archetype yeah. especially, yeah. But I think uh, like a Neil Gaiman that reminded me more of UA was Neverwhere, which was a book uh, that he wrote about um, this guy in London who helps this girl in the street and ends up getting sucked into this sort of underground version of London, which is not a, a, a that unique a concept. I've seen it before, but this is the first time I've encountered it. It had a lot of real weird shit that kind of like everything that was as above, so below in a way, like all the, especially the tube station names became literal. The Angel Islington was like an actual angel there. And there were all kinds of weird shit like Roman legionaries and all this sort of stuff. When I read it, I was like, this is very much like UK Anonamis to me. He stumbled across a very particular kind of um i would just change it a bit and add more urbanomances and make it into like a, a weird Lon central london game but it, it it's pretty pretty inspirational i think the key thing that differentiates unknown armies from all these other examples pretty much is that so many urban fantasy stories don't really have ensemble cast the way a ua game is basically faded to have just because you got a bunch of players. Can any of you guys think of any urban fantasy shit that hits similar tones that actually has an ensemble cast of some sort? I have one example, but... I have a weird example. It's not urban, it's not it. urban fantasy, but as I was watching it, I was reminded of UA on multiple occasions because of the surrealness and certain situations. But Doom Patrol <laughs> made me think, even though it's set in the DC universe, yeah. it, so many things I'm like, this could easily be stolen. And thinking about the characters, they all have weird powers and stuff. But I'm like, this could just be like, that guy's a clockwork. That guy's got a he's possessed uh great <laughs> morrison in general has a lot of great ua fodder and all the shit he's written like if you want basically ua the comic book the invisibles is especially like early oh, ua yeah. with that 90s flavor yes. the invisibles is just that's it um that's actually not what i was thinking of when i was thinking of examples as ensemble cast um a go-to example of mine for more personal ua sort of stories is um m john harrison's book uh course of the heart which is about like these three middle-aged people who were friends in like college who at co during college ended up getting wrapped up with this weird weirdo wizard and they do some sort of occult ritual that 
briefly takes them to a new level, a higher plane of existence. They come back. All of them are in some way dealing with uh, some weird magical happenstance that follows them all the time. And just the inciting incident for the book is the weird wizard contacts them for the first time in like 15 years, wants them to help him with something. It's hard to get into ex- exact details of spoiling a lot, but like one example is the occult phenomenon that the woman is dealing with is is that any time in her life, once in a while, these very small white people floating in air just start having sex somewhere near her. And it just shows up some every so often in her life. And it kind of, the book really draws a lot of uh, parallels, I think are interesting, of dealing with the unnatural and sort of dealing with mental illness and trying to live a decent life despite having this constant unpredictable struggle shove itself into there in ways that you can't possibly predict or plan around. I also like here's an example of people that used to be part of the occult underground and decided to back out of it story is much more personal there's not like some overarching goal there kind of is with the um old wizard dude uh, this isn't much of a spoiler he's uh hired the wizard to make a clone of his daughter that actually doesn't like have any will but is just like sort of a copy of his daughter's body it is willing to say what the guy's motives there but they are things that get pretty messed up i'm angry it's not on, it's not on kindle i can't find it anywhere on ebook um, M. John Harrison is like written a lot of sci-fi and fantasy. He's like one of the more read, well-known literary. I've read Viriconium, yeah, yeah. the first one. Uh, yeah, there you go. I just can't find the. There's no ebook of this particular book. It's one of his more obscure books, weirdly enough, which is again weird because I think it's one of his better books. Oh, and again, Tiger King, great, <laughs> great example for his like tone and feel of UA. Yeah, there's no magic, but everything else, everything else there is plenty. I think that the series on becoming a god in Central Florida is pretty good UA fodder for a certain kind of absurd game. Have you either either you guys seen that? I am familiar with it. The main thing I know about it is that all of its like posters have like a bunch of occult symbology inserted into them, which I dig. But I don't know. I haven't actually seen it. Basically, about um, his wife. Who, who's played by Kirsten Dunst, whose husband is like super deep into this MLM scheme and just losing all the money while she works in a, a water park. And then in the first episode, he dies and she's stuck in debt. And then so she has to end up going into the pyramid scheme. And she does quite well, but it's a constant desperate struggle to stay above ground. Um, but it's done in a really weird sort of surreal dark comedy aesthetic which I think is pretty good for a certain type of UA game. You could even combine that with some Tiger King elements and make it darker. But it's, it's MLMs in general are great UA fodder. It's also Lodge 49. Yeah, Lodge 49 with a burnout stoner dude that ends up in like a group of... They're, they're obviously based off the Masons, the Freemasons a yeah. lot, and what the Freemasons currently are. Yeah, just like this burnout stoner dude ends up in like this semi-cult, um, semi-gentleman's club. It's not really a, cult, of a bunch of it's just a, To me, it's just your standard sort of like Mason's club. You know, it's like Rotary Club. Yeah, yeah. It's just that there is a cult stuff going on. 
in the back, like, and it becomes more magical realism as it goes on, as secrets are unfold of unfolding. But the people involved aren't a cult so much as they're a, a social club. But things are discovered, and I quite like that in terms of it's it's a good model for like a pony campaign kind of thing, going into some organization like like that, like the lodge, which is kind of occultic but mostly bullshit once you pass the outside it looks weird and stuff it's it's all a show really but then you go into another layer and oh shit no there's real secrets in here that could be a fun setup for a campaign yeah it's a really good way to like start at street level and then when that's done you shift to the global level for the next objective all right well i think that is i think that's enough for now breaking up a bit there using uh I, oh. I've got some <laughs> astral parasites in here uh, uh, that are causing me some astral. Yeah. Um, Stuart, did you? No. Nah, um, did you say these, Stuart? Stuart, did you open the windows? I told I mean, you not to open the windows. I, I, didn't, I didn't realize that was like a literal commandment. Okay. I thought that was like okay. a metaphorical thing. Well, uh, I think we're going to have to end there then. Shit. All right. All right. La- later, listeners. Okay, Greg Stolze here, and boy am I excited about what I'm about to do next. I've been waiting for this for a long time.